This podcast is brought to you by Western Reformed Seminary, the Reformed Seminary of the Great Pacific Northwest. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I'm joined as always by my friend, Carl Truman, who is professor at Grove City College and the recent author of the runaway bestseller, <laughs> Rise and Triumph of the Modern yeah, I just Soul. I just bought my second helicopter. He's, right? he's, uh, he's into his second <laughs> helicopter. Uh, they just redecorated their second beach house. It's quite nice. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm amazed. Now, what I did find out, Carl, is though although you have not yet been canceled by Amazon, you were almost like by proxy canceled by Instagram, hey, weren't you? I've I've been canceled by Instagram. I, I yeah. send an email to Ryan Anderson straight away because the yeah. week before I'd been speaking with Ryan, and I said I feel so inferior that you know my book's still being sold by Jeff Bezos, yeah. and you've been binned. <laughs> And he said, you know, you, well, you need to earn your chops kind of thing. And uh, well, the week later, I found out that a school I was speaking at had put up an advert for my lecture on their Instagram account. And bam, it was Nailed taken them. down within 15 minutes. See, uh, that's, that's good work. Was some yeah. mystery as to whether it was the critical race theorists or right. the LGBTQ lobby that were behind it. <laughs> we're not sure, but one or the other or maybe Equal both. opportunity, though, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I have been cancelled. That's outstanding. Um, I feel good I was, about that. Yeah, I... I felt I'd made it at that point. <laughs> <laughs> you had arrived. You had arrived. My wife was immensely offended. Of I was I was walking on air for half an hour. Like, <laughs> man, they, they finally took me down. <laughs> well, we we are hoping <clears throat> that uh, our guest today is not canceled because he chose yet once again to uh, uh, to join us. But it's our privilege to uh, have a returning guest, uh, Michael Kruger. Michael Kruger is the uh, president of... Um, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, the Charlotte uh, campus. He is also the Samuel Patterson uh, Professor of uh, New Testament and Early Christianity uh, there. He is um, uh, an author who is always worth reading. Uh, his blog is one of my weekly go-tos. In fact, I would say of of all the, the blog posts that I send out to people, people in my church, got, you know, guys I serve with on staff, I don't know if there's a blog I, I send more posts out from than Michael Kruger's blog, just because it's so routinely helpful. I thought you and, said you sent a lot of QAnon stuff as well. <laughs> and QAnon. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> if you want the real truth, you go to QAnon. But um, uh, we, we are uh, uh, thankful that uh, Michael Kruger is joining us. Mike, thanks for, for being on with us again today. Well, thanks, guys. Great to be with you as always. And you need to introduce me next time as the guy with only one beach house and not two like Carl. <laughs> it's, it's hard. Well, it's very hard. It's hard to get to the two two house level. I mean, not everybody can get banned by Amazon. That's right. So. That's right. Well, uh, we, um, we we wanted to have uh, Dr. Kruger on to talk about his new, really excellent book, Surviving Religion 101, uh, Letters to a Christian Student 
on keeping the faith in college. Um, now, Michael, you know, you, you write scholarly material and you also write more pastoral popular level material as well. And uh, this book would be among your works that you write for a wider audience. And two things, first of all, just, just give us a little bit of what went into, you know, the decision-making process. This is going to be, you know, my next book. And then share just a little bit about the format of the book, because that's one of the things that is particularly, I think, effective as well as just warm uh, about the book, the format you chose. But so, so what kind of gave rise to it and, and just let our, reader, our, our listeners know a little bit about the format you chose. Yeah, thanks, Todd. Yeah, this is, this is a special book to me, um, maybe one of the most personal books to me. Uh, in the sense that it is not just my first lay-level book, as you indicated. Most of my other books have been more on the academic yeah. side of the spectrum, but also personal in the sense that um, it has to do with my own story a little bit. Um, and then it has to do with the fact that I'm writing for my daughter who's, yeah. who's in college. So the story begins really years ago in my own undergraduate time at UNC Chapel Hill when I found myself in a religion class without yeah. answers to tough questions from a professor. And as many of the listeners might already know, that professor was Bart Ehrman at UNC, and he's well known now for being one of the most vocal critics of the faith. At the time, though, he was just a brand new professor himself, but he was very diligently picking apart everything I believed in the class, um, and it, it rattled my cage pretty good, and it actually was used by God to lead me down the path of scholarship uh, I am in today. But, but basically, ever since that day, and this is really the case for you know, 30 some years, that book has been brewing in the back of my mind. And the thing that triggered me writing it was my own daughter going off to college. So as you indicated, it's a book for helping college students survive, well, Religion 101, but really all the challenges of a, yeah. of a secular university. And I wrote it in the form of letters to my daughter, Emma, who's actually currently at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that adds a personal touch to the book because mm. she's a real person and I am really writing these to her, but of course, I'm writing them to everybody who who might have these questions. So it, it was fun to write. It was very unique. Yeah. And I can tell you, you know, as a parent, there are moments um, where any parent reading the, the letters in this book will not only be helped in terms of their um, being reassured in their faith and, and that's sort of thing, but there is there's there's this inescapable in the best sense of this word, an, an inescapable emotional component that that is uh, really, you know, moving for a parent. But I would also say, if you're not a parent, um, if or or if uh, maybe uh, you're you're a student, um, th this is a book for you, and uh, you don't have to be a parent. But if you are, I, there, there's a there's a really wonderful warmth to it that I have really appreciated, and I know that the parents in the church I serve who are reading it have been very helped by it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it I think it touches on a, a perennial challenge for all parents. I remember when our boys were growing up, uh, numerous kids in the church professed faith and came forward and became community members of the church. And uh, I remember saying to my wife that it, I don't want to push my children into mm -hmm. membership. We always taught them that the responsibilities come with membership. And secondly, I'm not sure I'll truly believe that they believe until they're standing on their own two feet. Mm -hmm. And going to college was sort of that moment when yeah, they're able to step out of the home and, and they start to have to believe things for themselves rather than simply because mum and dad believe them. So yeah. this book is, is really useful, I think, for addressing kids 
at a watershed moment in their lives. I'm absolutely convinced that most of our important intellectual formation goes on between the ages of 18 and 22. We we leave home and before we settle into what will be the rhythm of life for the rest of our lives. So thanks very much for Mm -hmm. writing this, uh, Mike. One of the chapters uh, in the book uh, is, I think, a very important chapter. Uh, You deal with the issue of doubt. And of course, doubt, I found when I was a pastor, younger people in the congregation would talk to me, frightened to express their doubts because they didn't want to let their parents down. Uh, They didn't necessarily feel that the church was, I don't want to use the sort of snowflakey kind of language, but the church wasn't a safe place to express doubts in the sense that as soon as you express a doubt, you're regarded as somebody who's on their way out or in a deep spiritual crisis. Mm -hmm. Whereas Quite often when I was chatting to young people, they simply wanted to be able to honestly ask a question that they wanted an honest answer mm-hmm. to. They weren't looking for an excuse to, to exit. wonder, Mike, if you could talk us through uh, your approach to doubt in the book, the chapter on doubt, why you included it. Yeah, this was an important chapter to me. I actually end the book here. There's, there's an epilogue uh, as well, but the last chapter is on doubt because I think it doesn't get the right kind of attention in sort of the circles we run in. Um, and I think there's sort of two extremes in the culture, Christian culture for doubt that I wanted to avoid. One extreme is the one you hinted at, Carl, which is the sort of a shaming effect of doubt, where if a Christian feels like I have questions, they feel like they're immediately sort of labeled as a suspect believer, second-class citizen, maybe as you put it, teetering on the edge of apostasy, when they just want to have an open and frank conversation about some of the difficult things they're dealing with. And so I think we have a long way to go, particularly in the more conservative reform <laughs> circles of the church towards making church genuinely a place where people can ask questions and just say, I'm struggling with that. Yeah. I'm having a hard time here. And can someone help me? And I, I just think that it's too bad that it's maybe in a place where that doesn't hop, happen enough. Now, I also avoid the other extreme. And we all know this too, in certain circles where it seems like in some circles, doubt is the highest virtue of, of the Christian life and that you're actually encouraged to doubt everything. And that uh, if you're certain about anything, somehow there's something wrong with you, and right. that uncertainty is the is the ultimate goal. Yeah. And I think that's a problem too. And I make the point in the chapter that that although doubt doesn't you know doesn't shame you and make you a second class Christian, it's also something that if left unchecked can lead to real problems. And so you have to face your doubts, you have to deal with them, and you have to bring them into the light um, and and tackle them. So that was a really important chapter. And I walk through the different kinds of doubt because not all doubts the same. And then I just talk about some of the steps for dealing with doubt. And, uh, you know, this isn't just a college student problem, right? It's, it's every right. believer at some point in their life is going to deal with that. So I hope, I hope the chapter is helpful for just about anybody who would read it. Michael, what would you say? You're, you're a seminary president, but you're also a churchman, and, and you and your wife have raised children in the church. Um, one of the things that one of the disturbing trends we notice in church is, you know, deconversions. And of course, some of those are very famous and they get lots of press, but it does represent a a genuine problem. Anybody in in any church knows there is an issue with, you know, losing, so to speak, some of our young ones. Um, and and perhaps now we're, we're at a time where the pressure has been upped in terms of how the culture has catechized our children in so many ways. Um, at least makes it feel like the problem is is worse than it's been in the past. So the book comes at a good time. But I I wonder if if you would have just from your own experience what you've experienced broadly in in terms of what you do for a living you 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 get familiar with a lot of churches but you also know what it's like to to teach in a church and and to be a member of a church what can the church do better 
to help equip its children, when, when does this apologetic training need to begin? And, and, and what are some ways that you've seen maybe where churches have done this really well? Yeah. So yeah, you, you make the point, is it, is it worse today than it used to be? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if there's any hard stats on that, but, but I think what we can all agree is that college is a time where people struggle with their faith. Yeah, and that's never been uh, uh, more more clear now. But it's been the case for for generations. Mm-hmm. In fact, in my opening chapter, this, these things are easily missed. But in my opening chapter, I quote an article from the Atlantic in 1932. <laughs> so just let that sink in. Yeah. 1932, and the article's quote was this: The author Philip Wentworth says, "To say that college does something to the average student's religion is to state a truth which will be conceded by anyone who has given the matter a moment's thought." Mm. And he just acknowledges, yes, young people go off to college and they struggle. And so I think regardless of whether it's worse or not today, I think we just all need to know it's a problem still. And churches need to really take it seriously. What can churches do? Well, so many things. I think that the average youth group situation today needs serious recalibration. Um, I think there's probably a, in conservative circles, I'm guessing that the the strongest strand is probably what you might call pietistic strand, which is the Mm -hmm. number one goal is to make sure you live like a Christian, which, mm-hmm. by the way, is important. But uh, there, there isn't so much of a goal of making you think like a Christian. And so I think we just need to reframe things. Yes, it's important we live like a Christian, but sur- surely moral behavior can't be the extent of instruction yeah. in, our, in our youth groups. We've got to get into worldview issues, philosophical issues uh, at a deeper level than we have been up till now. Right. Yeah, and, uh, and I also think it's, it's, it's important for parents to realize that the challenges come at kids from different directions. I think of my, both of my boys, praise God, uh, profess faith while they were at college. Uh, interesting enough, I was pastor at the time. I was their pastor. I only found out about it when the agenda for the session meeting was sent out because <laughs> both boys contacted an, their el- an elder and said, we'd like to profess faith. And the elder assumed they'd told me they hadn't. <laughs> so I get the agenda for the meeting and realize I need to recuse myself because my kids have professed faith, but they couldn't be bothered to tell me. <laughs> uh, but with, with my two boys, I saw two different things for the one the, the issue was a moral issue, I think. I, I would characterize it as he came to a crossroads and it was a question of, am I going to live my life the way that mom and dad want me to live my life or am I going to go another way? And for my other son, it was an intellectual problem. It was, can I believe? Mm. Can I believe what mom and dad have told me or have they sold me a bill of goods, if I could put it that way? So I think it's important for parents to realize that you know, the crisis if it comes, doesn't necessarily come in one form or another. It's it's typically, you know, I, I think it's probably a combination of the two. But the accent, I think, will fall one way or the other. What do you think about that, Mike? As a as a as a way of looking at it? Yeah, absolutely. I think every student's different. Every child's different. Um, and you know, I would I would certainly add one other thought to it, which is that there's also can be what you might call the presenting problem. And then there mm-hmm. could be behind mm-hmm. it a, a, a deeper problem. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about intellectual objections that are curious is they're not always the real problem. Like yeah. s- sometimes they are. Sometimes a person just doesn't have an answer. And when you give them the answer, it's remarkably healing and satisfying mm-hmm. to them. Sometimes the questions aren't really intellectual questions at all, but are born out of uh, sort of a behavioral problem that's lurking behind right. the scenes. Yeah. And yeah. so it's really hard to diagnose those unless you start really asking some some more personal and more probing questions. And so one of the things I like to remind people of is that it's true that, that beliefs affect actions. 
So, you know, our, our behavior flows from our doctrine, but the reverse can also be true. It can be that your behavior yes. affects what you're willing to believe. And when you start behaving in a certain way, suddenly you find things that you once believed not so easy to believe anymore. And it's not so exactly. much that intellectual stuff has changed, but your behavior has changed. And I think that the, the two are just so dynamically related, they're hard to split. Yeah. And that reminds me of some of the, what I would describe, some of the more egregious aspects of these, you know, they now call them you know, deconstructing the faith, mm-hmm. where so often these characters are saying, you know, I'm leaving Christianity because nobody has been able to explain X to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there scratching my head thinking, actually, the church has been talking about that for 1,500 years. <laughs> you know, what you're actually saying is you can't be bothered to read the literature on it, which mm-hmm. tells me you're not really interested in finding an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. You're looking for a question that can form an excuse for you to jack it in, sleep with your girlfriend, or, yeah. you know, I don't want to trivialize it, but that kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. The two are connected for sure. It is. It is. And, you know, for our listeners, I, I, I want to give them just a flavor for some of the, you know, the breadth of the topics you cover. So here's, here's a few of the titles of, of the chapters. Um, I'm worried about being a Christian at a secular university. How will I survive? Um, my professors are really smart. Isn't it more likely that they're right and I'm wrong? That's I, I encountered that so often as a youth pastor when I would have uh, a freshman come back to me in crisis mode thinking, you know, there's there's no way my professors can be wrong. Look at the letters behind their names. Um, uh, here's another one. Uh, my Christian morals are viewed as hateful and intolerant. Um, shouldn't I be more loving and accepting? You know, can I trust the Bible, um, et cetera, et cetera. But here's one that is, um, you know, particularly pressing. And, and I think uh, in, in our church, at least when we're helping university students struggle through things, this is the one that probably comes up more, more often than any. Um, it's chapter five in the book. Um, I have gay friends who are kind, wonderful, and happy. Are we sure that homosexuality is really wrong? And Michael, I wonder if you would just give our readers just from that chapter, a little bit of a flavor of how you approach that in, because it's a very, it's a deeply felt issue. Um, and what I have found is that oftentimes Christian young people um, have been taught that homosexuality is a sin, but they haven't really been taught to understand why it is, why God's um, boundaries on human sexuality are actually very, very good. And so that crumbles rather easy when they when they meet and become friends with people who are gay, and they have no good reason to back up why they've been taught that this is a sin. Uh, I want give, give our listeners just a little bit of a flavor of how you address that issue in this letter to your daughter. Yeah, well, this is obviously a very key issue for any college student. Sexuality is going to be at the front of almost every discussion nowadays, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you touched on it there. The, the rationale for the chapter isn't just dealing with sexuality in general. The rationale yeah. for the chapter is having a homosexual friend mm-hmm. and what that does to college students. And th- yeah. this is the reality. Most youth Christians that come out of the circles, at least that we run in, are probably going to head into college and have never had a homosexual friend before. When they get to college, they're probably going to meet people that are gay, and they're going to probably become friends with them, at least at some level. And they're going to be faced with the dilemma of the chapter, which is twofold problem. One is, wow, I really like this person. They're kind Mm -hmm. and friendly. How does that square with my belief about homosexuality? That's sort of problem A. And then problem B, they're going to be faced with the reality that what they think about that person's sexual uh, choices offends that person personally. In other words, it's not just that you can go to your friend and disagree over 
homosexuality like you could disagree over, you know, theistic evolution as if right. as if the two are the same, because one is very emotionally laden and one is not. One is very personal. Yeah. One is not. And so you, you, these, these poor students are dealing with both problems. One is they're, they're faced with, with their gay friend they really like. And then at the same time, mm-hmm. they're faced with a gay friend that if you tell them homosexuality is wrong, they think that you've destroyed their personal identity. Mm-hmm. So I, I walk through that chapter just dealing with, you know, how to, uh, how to show the appropriate level of respect and courtesy and gentleness at the same time to affirm what you know to be true. Um, and, you know, and also recognize that uh, you're dealing with somebody's own misunderstanding of how sexuality identifies them and how you need to sort of, you know, tread carefully. One, one of the tips I give students, and I'll give it here in the, in, the, in the podcast, and that is sometimes when you're talking with friends about sexuality, sometimes it's better to take a step back and not necessarily debate the particular sexual act, although there's a place for that if it comes up, but rather take a step back and ask your friend how they know whether any act is right or wrong, how, how they know any act is moral or immoral. And I think when you change the debate a little bit like that, you, you realize it, it takes a little bit of the emotional uh, yeah. fire out of it. And then it also forces them to account for morality at a more fundamental level. And I think that really is an effective uh, uh, strategy when you're talking to folks about this issue. Yeah, definitely. That's good. Yeah. This uh, problem may be more distinctive to more conservative colleges, Mike, than, than uh, University of North Carolina, for example. And one of the things I've noticed at Grove City College is we have a a lot of kids come from good, solid sort of Bible churches, and they arrive at Grove City College and, and they discover the church has a history. They discover confessions. They discover doctrine. They discover liturgy. Many of them go to uh, the local Anglican church, the priest there, Ethan Magnus, good friend of mine, super fellow. Uh, and you know, one of my colleagues has jokingly said, rebellion at Grove City College is coming from a Bible church and becoming an Anglican. <laughs> but there's also a trend uh, among young people, not just at Grove, but elsewhere, of, of moving to Catholicism, moving to Eastern Orthodoxy, often for reasons that I myself can sort of sympathize with, that there is a a seriousness and uh, and a historical rootedness to these Christian traditions that is perhaps missing elsewhere and in a an era where we are increasingly rootless and yet desire to be rooted, one can see the attraction of these things. And again, just to qualify my question, I say, you know, there are there are many, many, much worse things to to convert to at college than Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. I don't wish to denigrate those two traditions at all, but I, I wonder, you know, your book is very much focused on the traditional departing from the faith in general. What about those who find the, the faith that they've been brought up with by their parents or traditional Protestantism to be inadequate, but don't want to abandon the faith and move towards Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy? What advice would you give to, to those students? And this sort of touches on work you've done elsewhere with the canon that, of course, raises obvious questions about ecclesiastical authority, et cetera. No, I think that's a very curious observation. And, and you're right, that wasn't obviously directly covered in the book, but it's a real problem. We know that um, there, there's a lot of things to change your views about rather than moving towards a more secular posture. You can more move towards other religious traditions or other what you might call other Christian traditions. And I think that's an issue. I mean, the fact that that's an issue at all, though, is, is actually reveals some of the same problems that, that my book covers, which is apparently many evangelical churches are not doing a very good job yeah, training yeah. our youth before they go out the door about what we really mm-hmm. are like and what we really believe. And so just like 
youth will leave with no awareness of non-Christian thinking and no awareness of how to answer it. They also leave the church with no awareness that there is a church history and that there is a uh, history of creeds and that there is a, a doctrinal rootedness that goes back before 1550, you know, um, mm. and there's, you know, everything starts in the Reformation, apparently, in, in, in some churches. And so there's a sense in which we haven't done a very good job there either. So the first thing I'll point out is just that I think it shows once again that the upbringing problem is still there. Um, and that we need to do a better job introducing our folks to what Christians are really like historically. The other, the other thing I'll say is that when a Christian runs off to Roman Catholicism from, say, a growing up in a, maybe a Reformed Presbyterian world, what might be happening, again, is they may not even understand their own tradition. Because mm-hmm. what I often hear is that, wow, I want more robust uh, thinking, more, more historical rootedness, uh, you know, more, more theological sophistication. I'm like, well, maybe the version of of the faith you've, you've been in hasn't been a very good example then because all those things exactly. are already there. Um, yep. And so I, I would encourage any college student thinking about that to really do their homework before they switch over Definitely. and ex- explore the deep rootedness that reformed Protestants already have that they may just not know about because if they're, fi- if they're fighting against a caricature, let's be honest, sometimes they do. Right. Then that's not a very fair battle. It's just a straw man battle. Um, they need to be really dealing with what, what Protestants historically have really thought. Yeah, definitely. Just before we close, Mike, then, if, do you have any specific advice for parents? Obviously, if your kid's just about to go to college, it's a little bit late to be sort of <laughs> you know, laying down the foundations. Yeah. We probably got people listening to this podcast. Their kids are five, seven, ten. They they got a few years to go before they have to, you know, pack the kids off to college and 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 start worrying about what they're getting up to there. Do you have any any thoughts uh, on on what parents can be doing? long-term to prepare their kids for, for the big wide world. It's what we do in other areas of life. What, what should we be doing in the, in the Christian area in order to anticipate these kind of problems? Yeah. Yeah. So for, for those parents whose kids have already maybe started college or almost there and, and, and look back and think, man, maybe I didn't do a very good job. You know, there's a question of what they can do. Uh, and, you know, not, not to sound like a cliche, but th- there is a sense in which I hope they can get good material in, in their hands. And hopefully my, yeah. my book can be part of that. But, uh, but, but I, one, one advice for those parents with older kids is make sure that when your kid comes home and has questions that you don't make the same mistake, perhaps, that churches are making by coming across as super defensive, yeah. super resistant, and, and almost to the point where your, your, your child quickly realizes, oh, I can't bring my questions here. You know, I would just encourage parents, take a deep breath. The world's not ending. You know, let, let your child have some space to talk about what they're struggling with without feeling yes. like they should be shamed for having the questions at all. So that's, that's just, a, just a one, one thought for parents already with older kids. For those with younger kids, the good news, of course, is there's more time. Um, and, you know, part of this uh, can be figuring out, you know, is our church home the right home? Which I think is always a, a question anyone can ask. Is this the place that's given us the robust teaching we need? And maybe it is, and, and that's fine. You're going to stay there. But I think you can certainly ask larger questions like that. As far as the training of your kids from there, I, I, I find it very interesting to ask my kids to articulate what they believe to someone who isn't sympathetic to listening to it. And so what I used to do with my kids is I would play the skeptic and I would pretend to be Mr. Skeptical Professor, and then I would sort of poke at them with questions and, and, and force them to express their Christian beliefs in a way that they never have to before. Because truthfully, in, a, in, in our Christian world, largely a, a little bit of a sympathetic Christian bubble, even if our students are taught truth, they rarely, here's the key, they rarely have to articulate 
truth. Right. Those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. And anybody in education knows those are two very different things. And I think even if you're in a good church that teaches your kids truth, I bet you they've not been forced to articulate it. And so that, that articulation phase is enormously instructive. So as soon as you can start forcing them to articulate it to maybe a, a less than sympathetic voice or, or ear rather, I think that would be a great first step. Mm. Great. That's a really great idea. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that, Mike. Well, it's been a real pleasure uh, having uh, Michael Kruger on the program today. He's uh, not only president of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, uh, he's also the author of Surviving Religion 101, Lessons to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College, the book we've been talking about uh, today. If you're interested in trying to win a copy, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you'll have a chance to enter to win a copy. If uh, you don't win a copy, I would still urge you to to purchase one, read it, buy one, give it to your kids as they go away to college. This is a great talking point and a great source of wisdom uh, at a moment that is always, I think, peculiarly challenging both for parents and for children as well. So thanks very much for writing the book, Mike, and thanks for being with us. Oh, and and, and I do want to mention one thing about our guest. Um, He is the, the lesser half of Melissa Kruger. That's true. That's true. Famous for being husband of Melissa. Exactly. Yes. That, that's, that's one of his greater achievements. That is, that, is, that is my new title now in my bio, uh, <laughs> Melissa Kruger's husband, which I embrace happily. Well done. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. No, I'm, I, I, I love all that she's doing too. And, yes. and uh, thanks for having me on the show, guys. It's been, been fun talking. I enjoyed it. Well, really thanks much. very much. And uh, we look forward to being with uh, the audience again next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Michael. Hello. Hey, this is Todd Pruitt. Hey, buddy. What's hey, happening? You know this and that. We're so glad that you uh, are joining us today. Um, once again, Thanks, risking your reputation. So we, <laughs> we appreciate that. And yours, apparently. So. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. So, hey, are, do I need to be off video here? I'm just on it because it's Zoom, but tell me how we're doing this. Oh, you're free to be on there. I, I think that the Alliance wants to minimize any film footage of Carl and I uh, as, as possible. And so... Anytime that they can make sure there's no video evidence, they'll try to do that. So that's just my, All right. that's just my theory. That's just my theory. Yeah. But, well, uh, I'm buying that theory. I that <laughs> um, yeah. Michael, thanks for writing the book. But we are changing the topic. We're going to talk to you about wokeness in the PC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We thought we'd well, do something non-controversial. It's been good talking to you guys. I'm going to have to uh, bow out of the call <laughs> Western Reformed Seminary is a Bible-believing Presbyterian seminary in the great Pacific Northwest. Their mission is to prepare church leaders who are spiritually grounded, knowledgeable, capable, and dedicated through solid theological training. 
Academic degrees such as Masters of Biblical or Theological Studies, as well as the Masters of Christian Ministry, with emphasis in Biblical Counseling, Missions, or Church Ministry. Along with degree programs, students may take a class as a standalone for credit or audit. Although residency classes offer the best learning environment, Western Reform Seminary offers interactive, synchronous classes for students unable to attend in person, as well as concentrated classes in January and May every year. For more information, visit wrs.edu or email registrar at wrs.edu. Western Reformed Seminary.